On behalf of the Oxford Climate Migration Network, I'd like to welcome you to the launch uh, of our network and our talk today about climate change and migration. We're excited to see such a great turnout uh, for our two fantastic speakers, uh, Professor Jane McAdam and Assad Raymond. Um, Assad will be joining us shortly. Uh, he had some issues with his train. Um, so we're going to hear each of them speak, and then we'll open the floor to questions and answers. After that, we're going to talk about the network itself, and we'd be keen to get your input and feedback on, on how we will function as a network going forward. Um, Professor McAdam will speak first. Uh, Professor McAdam is uh, one of, if not the foremost, academic experts on climate change, migration, and displacement. She is the Cynthia Professor of Law and the director of the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. So thank you for coming all this way. Um, Professor McAdam has strong ties to Oxford. She got her DPhil here. Um, and is a research associate at the Refugee Studies Center. She's also the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law. Um, she served as an advisor to the UNHCR, to the IOM, um, and was a member of the consultative committee for the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement. She's published widely on the topic, um, several books and a number of articles, um, and has also been a wonderful mentor and invaluable as we have started this network. So thank you, and I'll hand it over to Professor McAdam. Thank you so much, Lauren, for that very generous introduction. Um, it's a really great pleasure to be here and particularly to, to be at the start of what I think will be, a, and I certainly hope, will be a very successful network of scholars here at Oxford and perhaps even beyond. I'd also like to acknowledge Erica and Max for uh, their roles in making today's event happen and, of course, All Souls College for allowing us to use this beautiful space for, for this um, I was going to say conversation, presentation, whatever we like to call it, this event. So on average, one person is displaced each second by a disaster-related hazard. In global terms, that's about 26 million people each year. Most of those people move within their own countries, but some are forced across international borders. International law generally doesn't regard such people as refugees and national responses are unpredictable and ad hoc. So clearly there are some protection gaps. First of all, it's important to recognise that what transforms a disaster-related hazard into a disaster is the fact that people's coping capacity is exceeded. This means that it's actually erroneous to talk about natural disasters because disasters themselves are conditioned on uh, social, economic and political as well as environmental factors. And this explains why good governance is crucial, because the nature and timing of policy interventions will play a huge role in determining the outcomes that we see in the aftermath of a disaster, as well as, of course, in you know, beforehand as to whether hazards transform into disasters. Policy responses can help to determine whether people move at all, whether they are displaced for prolonged periods of time, what resources they can access and how readily, and whether they have options to move to more secure areas to rebuild their lives. So, for instance, if building codes are implemented and enforced, then people will be safer. 
if disaster warning systems are in place, then people can have time to move themselves out of harm's way. We know from studies of flooding in Bangladesh, for example, that when people received prompt assistance um, immediately after the disaster took place, they were much more likely to stay nearby, return and rebuild, than to move on in search of work to survive. A contrast would be in the Philippines, a year after Typhoon Haiyan occurred, tens of thousands of people were still displaced because the authorities said it was too unsafe for them to go back, but they didn't have anywhere else for them to relocate to. So this, setting up the governance frameworks, the legal and the policy frameworks, is absolutely crucial. Before talking about what some of these things are, I just wanted to sketch a few kind of preliminary um, points that we need to bear in mind, because these also will determine what kinds of sol you know, solutions we think are appropriate. So first of all, what we're talking about when we refer to disaster or climate change related displacement or migration is a multi-causal phenomenon. And that's why I keep using the term related. This is because the impacts of climate change in and of themselves don't cause displacement. And that is the, that's the case whether we are talking about small island countries like Kiribati or Tuvalu in the Pacific, or whether we're talking about situations like Bangladesh. What we see is that disasters or the impacts of climate change, and of course those two can be related as well, overlay existing vulnerabilities like poverty, resource scarcity, uh, environmental fragility or degradation, lack of work opportunities and so on. And this was described to me by a government official in Bangladesh as being, you know, climate change is effectively the straw that breaks the camel's back. Second thing to bear in mind is that climate change functions as a threat multiplier. It magnifies risk. So disasters become disasters on steroids. They become more frequent or, and or more intense. At the same time, climate change is also a process. So slow onset impacts like sea level rise or desertification take place over longer periods of time, resulting in a gradual deterioration of living conditions that may themselves eventually render land uninhabitable. These may pose a more permanent risk to human settlement um, over a certain period. Third thing to recognise is that current legal protection frameworks don't readily provide a means for people to move across borders in anticipation of future environmental harm, even though it's entirely rational for people to try and move out of harm's way if it, if it seems fairly likely that a disaster is imminent or that in the longer term where they live is not going to be secure. And also, since the longer term impacts of climate change don't really fit with political election timeframes, this means that policy development is easily overlooked. Um, what we found in a lot of the international negotiations is that climate change and disasters is sort of everybody's business and yet nobody's business. So we have um, environmental departments of government working on some issues, we have um, the development actors working on other issues, foreign policy, um, sometimes migration departments, but not always. And so we get to a point where people know little bits of the puzzle, but we don't 
often have a more um, integrated and comprehensive understanding. And of course, that siloing of policy areas means that you can then um, have a, a kind of void in terms of whose responsibility is it in national or local government to do something about it. This is why ensuring that we can create a holistic, cross-cutting and coordinated approach in this area is really important. So it was concerns like these that resulted in the creation in October 2012 of the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement. This was an intergovernmental initiative that was created by Switzerland and Norway as a result of states' very great unwillingness to allow UNHCR, the Refugees Agency, to take a leading role. So there was a sense among states that this was something that they wanted to have control of. And Norway and Switzerland recognised a general interest in perhaps starting to explore some of these issues. And this is how the Nansen Initiative was born. It was, even though it was led by governments, it was in effect a bottom-up consultative process that sought to develop, and did develop, a protection agenda that would address the needs of people displaced across international borders by natural disasters, this was their original language, including the effects of climate change. They ran a series of seven sub-regional consultations between 2013 and last year, and in that process developed a very nuanced understanding about the challenges posed by disasters and climate change in different parts of the world. They also consulted in that process, not only with government officials, but with relevant civil society groups, um, community-based organisations, academics, international organisations, other experts. And it really was, I think, um, an exercise in building uh, not only a lot of goodwill, but also real networks and um, understandings across sections of um, you know, policy makers and academia that would not necessarily always otherwise occur. So the culmination of the Nansen Initiative was the presentation in October last year of the, what, what is called the Agenda for the Protection of Cross-Border Displaced Persons in the Context of Disasters and Climate Change, known as the Protection Agenda. A lot of very long names here. Um, 109 governments endorsed this agenda. Now, it's not a legal framework, it's not even a soft law framework, but instead it provides a toolbox of concrete policy responses and effective practices that governments can implement now, both to avert displacement uh, where possible, as well as to protect and assist people who end up being displaced. So I'll, I'll talk in a moment about what some of those um, elements were. What I just would like to mention at this point is that the Nansen Initiative concluded at the end of last year. Two weeks ago at the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey, a successor organisation was announced or was launched and this is called the Platform on Disaster Displacement. It will officially commence its work in July this year and what it will seek to do is to start implementing some of the concrete recommendations and um, follow-up areas that the Nansen, uh, Nansen Initiative identified. The platform will follow a quite a similar process it will remain state-led. It will be chaired by Germany for the first 18 months with Bangladesh as the vice chair, which will then become the chair. In addition to those two countries, the founding members are Australia, Brazil, Canada, Costa Rica, the EU, 
Fiji, France, Kenya, Madagascar, the Maldives, Mexico, Morocco, Norway, the Philippines, Senegal and Switzerland. Together, these states will um, constitute the steering group, which will provide strategic leadership and guidance. In addition, there will be an advisory committee comprised of academics, civil society leaders and other experts. There will be a small secretariat based in Geneva and a new um, branch of uh, which the Nansen Initiative didn't formally have. There will be a working group comprised of relevant international organisations or lead agencies on particular areas, including IOM and UNHCR. Like the Nansen Initiative, the platform won't seek to create new law, new normative frameworks or standards, but instead will try and enhance what the Nansen Initiative has done and promote policy coherence by linking in to existing initiatives. And that's where the Nansen Initiative was very successful, I think, in what they called feeding and, or sorry, framing and feeding into other processes on foot, like the World Humanitarian Summit, the Sendai Framework, um, the climate change negotiations in Paris. There are elements of all of those that have language and, and ideas that have come directly from the Nansen Initiative process. So what's the role of law in all of this? Well, as I've noted, there are certainly protection gaps. And it's perhaps unsurprising that both scholarly imagination and media interest has been captured by some of the kind of big questions here. You know, this idea of climate refugees or sinking island nations. And then with those kinds of, you know, big picture blue sky thinking has come an assumption that we must therefore need to create new international treaties in order to address them. Now, we know that among governments, there is an absolute reticence to do that. But even among legal experts who've been closely engaged with these ideas, and particularly with the with sort of in-country consultations and fieldwork, there's broad consensus that it would be premature at this stage to try and create new international norms. Quite apart from the lack of political will, there is a risk that overemphasizing a new legal framework could in fact start to distract from the very clear need to do things right now at the local, national and regional levels that may, as I've mentioned, avert displacement, but also try and make people safer if it occurs. So I'm not saying that it's, it's an either or, you can have both, but I do think that focusing on a treaty can really start to channel energy in a counterproductive way compared to some of the things that we know can happen now that will really make um, a difference. There are also other issues which I don't have time to go into here, but I mean, these link back to this idea of multi-causal movement. How do you single out, or, or should you single out, disasters or climate change as a reason for displacement if inevitably they're intertwined with other factors? And then from a human rights perspective, why those things as opposed to poverty, for instance, which again, we can link up to global economic and financial processes. Um, and the final point I'd make here is that you can have treaties on anything in the world you like, but they need to have political will behind them, not only to be ratified, but certainly to be implemented and enforced. We only need to look at the Refugee Convention, which has um, a, a majority of the world's countries signatory to it, and yet the fact that we've got the largest number of refugees since the Second World War you can have a, a treaty, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the results you necessarily want. So it's these things that perhaps aren't so sexy for 
scholars and the media like ensuring building codes are enforced, ensuring that land is not used in an unsustainable manner, um, having better planning laws. Those things will actually make a real difference on the ground. So it's, you know, that they're some of the things that we could do right now. In again, I don't have a lot of time to go through all the frameworks, but very briefly, in terms of the application of existing law, international refugee law in most cases won't apply. Um, a refugee is someone with a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion or membership of a particular social group. Um, and generally the impacts of climate change will not satisfy this notion of persecution as that's understood in law. But even if it did, showing that it's for reasons of your race or religion or whatever it might be is going to be particularly challenging. The reason why I say generally refugee law won't apply is because there may be some situations where a more classic refugee scenario would arise. And the example would be this. If, for instance, there were a disaster and the government restricted access to fresh water supplies or to humanitarian assistance to a particular group within that community, then that might be a classic refugee case. So the, the disaster would provide the general context, but it wouldn't be the thing that made somebody into a refugee. And New Zealand has the most developed case law on this. In my view, human rights law provides probably the, the best mechanism, um, the easiest fit, but there are still some obstacles there. What I'm thinking of here is that human rights law prevents the return of people to a situation where they, they would face um, arbitrary deprivation of life. It also protects people against return to inhuman or degrading treatment. I think we can well imagine how a combination of factors like uh, lack of safe housing, lack of access to water, to food, to jobs and so on together could constitute these things. But again, the New Zealand courts are leading the way here and what they have recognised is potentially yes, but at the moment, the situation is not so dire, in this case in Tuvalu or Kiribati, that return now would be a problem. So this point of imminence, how imminent does harm have to be, is, um, is quite an interesting idea to consider. Um, and there's also, you know, unlike in the case of, um, you know, there have been some cases around nuclear power and, and disasters that have occurred as a result of that. I think here, because countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati don't on their own have the capacity to kind of fight off climate change around the world, that, that element of the role of government is also quite uh, influential in terms of decision makers thinking about what's it reasonable for a state itself to do to protect its own citizens against future harm. Um, and just briefly, sometimes people talk about statelessness, you know, what if small island states were to become um, uninhabitable, then would people be be stateless. Um, I could spend an hour talking about that, I clearly won't. Short answer is it's quite ill-fitting, there are a number of hurdles there, so that doesn't provide us with the answer either. So gaps, yes, complete legal void, not necessarily. Um, I think we have to recognise that a one-size-fits-all response is not appropriate. But going back to the Nansen Initiative Protection Agenda, it provides a really great starting point with the toolkit of ideas. So the things that they say we need to do um, and can do now are, first of all, states need to help people to stay put, 
where they want to by enhancing disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. This will help build resilience um, by systematically integrating disaster risk reduction measures, there's a much better chance that if there is a disaster, then people will be able to cope better, um, may avoid some displacement altogether, or will be displaced for a shorter period of time. That said, second point is we do still need to prepare for some displacement. IPCC projections suggest that there, will, you know, there is already displacement now, even if most of it's internal, there certainly will still continue to be. So here, we need to ensure that governments are implementing the guiding principles on internal displacement with respect to those within their own countries. And that, as I said, will be by far the largest group of people. But they also need to look at developing more predictable uh, humanitarian stay arrangements or temporary stay arrangements. Examples where this already happens are um, quite extensive in the Americas. For instance, after the um, earthquake in Haiti in 2010, the Dominican Republic admitted over 200,000 people, as did many other countries in that part of the world. And we know, I mean, the Nansen Initiative compiled about, I think there were about 50 different countries that have variations of this on their books, but it's all very ad hoc. So trying to create more consistent practices would be helpful. Third point is that governments should think about how they can better use migration. So enhancing voluntary migration opportunities, but also using existing visa categories more cleverly. An example of the latter is Canada, after the um, Haitian earthquake, said, right, we've got all sorts of applications by Haitians in our system for whether it is family reunion, whether it's you know, work, whatever, they expedited those. So that's one way to regularise the status of people already there or help to bring people quickly who need help. The other thing you can do though is come up with, and again there are examples, bilateral um, or regional free movement arrangements or training programs that seek to bring people in, in particular skill shortage areas. Uh, or you, I mean, governments, if they wanted to, could create any kind of visa category they want, you know, they liked. So they could specifically target areas or countries of risk. Um, in my own region, Australia and New Zealand have developed particular programs for Pacific Islanders. New Zealand has what's known as the Pacific Access Category, which gives a small number of people an entitlement to move as permanent residents to New Zealand each year. Not technically to do with climate change and disasters but is certainly an avenue that people can use to move. Um, Australia hasn't done anything formally through its migration program, but through its development agency had a small but really innovative scheme that enabled people from Kiribati to come to one of our universities and train as nurses. Nursing is a skills shortage in Australia. So when they qualified, they were then able to apply for a visa to work in Australia as a nurse, which gave them then permanent residence and a pathway to citizenship if they wanted to take that up. Final point here is planned relocation, um, which again we sometimes hear of in the, in the context of the Pacific. Maybe we could just pick up the 10,000 inhabitants of Tuvalu and plonk them somewhere else. Has been done before, not with Tuvalu. Um, there have been planned relocations in the Pacific in the 40s. Having studied those, the general view I would have is they are highly problematic. They can have very long-term psychological consequences that are very negative. 
Um, you cannot just separate people from their, their land, their home, um, their resources. So if relocations are to occur, whether they be of 30 people in a particular area or arguably a whole country, um, we need to be very careful there about how we plan that, how people are consulted and, and what's ultimately devised. That said, in Fiji at the moment, there are planned relocations of small communities to other parts of Fiji. It might only be two kilometres up a hill. Um, what we describe as planned relocation, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that the big move a country somewhere else idea. So, um, in conclusion then, I guess the point I want to leave you with is the fact that there are many interventions that could be taken right now that could significantly reduce the future numbers of people displaced in the context of disasters and climate change. As the Prime Minister of the Cook Islands has said, if we fail to plan, then we plan to fail. And I think that the action or the inaction of governments today will determine whether we see future humanitarian catastrophes or more manageable movement. And while the ideal outcome might be avoiding movement altogether, a pre-planned strategy on mobility will, in my view, be far preferable to displacement in the face of impending disaster. Thanks very much for your attention. Thank you, Jane. Um, we're now going to hear from our second speaker, Mr. Assad Raymond. Um, he's just arrived. Do you have? Okay, great. Um, so, uh, Mr. Raymond has been active in social justice issues for several decades um, and has spoken on climate change issues in various international and domestic platforms. He is currently the head of International Climate for Friends of Our Earth and is also on the executive committee for Friends of Our Earth International. He is the co-coordinator of a global campaign uh, to demand climate justice and has been a key negotiator for uh, the organization at the UN Climate Negotiations. Um, so I'll hand it over to you, Asan. Um, apologies for the slightly late, being slightly late. I was trying to bend the time the continuum. I'm trying to do too many things and I missed my connection. Um, well, I'm not a technical expert on on, on the issues in, in terms of around uh, climate protection, climate-induced refugees, climate migrants, etc. But I was asked to maybe say something more about the political context in which this discussion is taking place. So, um, I was thinking about it on the way here, and I was depressed myself, actually. Uh, um, so, I, I, I apologise, because uh, I would maybe my start is going to be more pessimistic of the sort of brain, but hopefully more optimistic in terms of the heart. So I was asked to say a little bit about how and what the global social movements are thinking very much around this particular issue. And I thought, first of all, maybe just to start with, of course, Paris. Um, so this huge diplomatic victory that, uh, that was celebrated uh, in all the major media and, and amongst large sections of civil society as well. Um, and to actually think about what it actually meant for uh, climate change and uh, and of course we all know so I'm not going to I, I presume you all know the, the 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 science and so I'm not going to talk about the science the warnings the impacts uh, but of course the agreement you know says something very important it says we commit ourselves to keeping temperatures below the two degree guardrail now uh, those with maybe a, 
who'd been around the negotiations a little bit longer, might remember actually when that target was put forward in 2009 in Copenhagen, the African negotiators said it was a death sentence for their continent. And because um, what they talked about was, of course, that the consequences for the continent as a whole as one of the most vulnerable places in the world in terms of collapse of the agricultural systems, uh, internal displacement, issues around uh, access to water and water stresses, etc. All things that actually, you know, now when we look at what's going on within, within Africa with some of the longest drought in the Sahel, in, uh, huge drought taking place in southern Africa, in Mozambique, we see actually a lot of what the negotiators, of course, were saying and what climate scientists were saying as being very true. Now, one major sort of, I suppose, outcome of Paris that people talked about a lot and uh, was, of course, the mention of the 1.5 degree guardrail, particularly because it was very much came from some of the most vulnerable countries, particularly the small island states who talked about 1.5 to stay alive. And, um, of course, whilst it does mention this 1.5 uh, guardrail in there, of course, it's, it simply says it's about an effort to limit the temperature increase to 1.5. So it's not, a, of course, binding. And, and some would say uh, there is a real debate, and a lot of the social movements debated this, actually, in Paris, whether it was worth even having the 1.5 degree uh, mentioned because of the huge cost of having that sentence. So you may know that in the last moments in Paris, there was uh, lots of arm twisting going on in negotiations. And one of the things that was being negotiated was, of course, whether you should have a mention of 1.5 degrees. Now, many of the people in the rooms of the negotiators will say, well, we won that, but we won it at a huge cost. And the huge cost, of course, was the demand by particularly the United States, but also the European Union, to have no legal liability, no legal liability for future compensation claims. And for many in the social movements, particularly in the global social movements in the South, that was a big issue because when they looked at it and said, hold on a minute, we don't see the urgency. We don't see this idea that we're in a planetary emergency. And we don't see the requisite actions to be taken by rich developed countries. And already we're giving away and, and rich developed countries are now saying that they don't want to be liable for any future compensation. So where does that leave us? And what are, what are the consequences for us uh, as uh, impacted people? And of course, you all know that the INDC is the international... Intended nationally determined contributions, now called the national determined na contributions, all add up to a 3.4 degree warming of the planet. And uh, all the climate scientists of course I tell you, you know, the difference uh, and the impacts that we're seeing around the world, you know, are of course all happening at a one degree warming of the planet. These are all things that people talked about would only ever happen at once we'd gone past two degrees. And of course they're happening at one degree. And now people talk about that the difference between a 1.5 degree world and a two degree world can be measured now in how many millions of people will be impacted, what kind of displacements will take place. So the movements in the global south actually didn't really celebrate Paris in the way that maybe a lot of northern NGOs and civil society celebrated Paris or, and saw it as a huge, of course, a huge diplomatic success, but said, well, no, whilst we're not necessarily in the final uh, uh, stretches of, of making sure we've got this global agreement, it gives us something we can build on. Now, that might be true, and of course, I believe that in the sense that we have to keep fighting, but I think the reality is that there is a bit of a disconnect going on between science and policy positions, and these are not true just of 
I think, of, of governments, but also actually of civil society itself. Because if you actually look at what's being put forward and proposed by rich developed countries, you know, there was a, a big report done by civil society groups, spanned the trade unions and faith organisations, southern movements in this global south, plus all the big brands that you can think of, from WWF, CARE, Friends of the Earth, etc. Looked at all the fair shares, and they all said what the European Union was proposing was about one-fifth of what they needed to do in terms of their fair share. What Japan was proposing was about one-tenth of their fair share. What the US was proposing was about one-fifth of its fair share. And for any hope of meeting the 1.5 degree target, then what the European Union needed to be doing is, is basically something around about 83% emission reduction by 2030. Now, as soon as government signed the Paris Agreement, you may remember, our own government came back here to, the, to London and the first thing it did was it slashed the subsidies for the renewable energy industry. And then it handed over £3 billion to dirty energy corporations and said, gung-ho, we're going to go to fr for fracking. And that was, of course, similar scenes all across the world. Real disconnect between, of course, the policies that governments needed to enact the urgency that needed to happen and what the science was telling us. Now, Carbon Brief did a very, very simple graphic. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Maybe I should have brought it. Have you seen this? It's a very, very simple graph. It shows you what, how much carbon budget is left for each temperature level. And the carbon budget for 1.5 is about six years. Yeah, if you want a good chance of meeting the 1.5, it's about six years. Uh, of course, you can have a little bit more. Uh, if you want a 50-50 chance or if you want just a 30% chance. Um, and so, so scientists like Prever Professor Kevin Anderson of Tyndall Centre, you know, they all talk about now basically this is the decade zero. These are the decisions we make in this decade will determine not whether we meet the 1.5, but actually if we, even if we may meet the two degree target. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is I could pull out all of the IPCC AR5 report, the fifth assessment report, look at the impacts and just read it. Read what it says about what the consequences and the impacts are going to be on all the different continents, not just the small island states, but in Africa and Asia for a two degree warming of the planet. Read what the World Bank says in its, in, the, uh, in its report about what the consequences of, of warming is going to be. Uh, and they've done a really interesting study as well, and they've gone and looked at all the different regional impacts. Now, in the light of all that, I, a couple of months ago, the European Union announced, well, we're not going to increase our targets in pre-2020, the 20% emission reduction that they've got in for 2020 and neither are we going to in increase our targets for 2030 we think we're doing far well enough and that's and that's actually I, I mean the great irony of course is that the european union's emission reduction target I, I they've already met that target for 2020 they met it in 2014 they're actually going to be at a 30 percent emission reduction by 2020 but they don't want to increase it because they want to make it look like they're doing 20 percent reduction rather than actually 10% reduction in the next decade. You just think, wait a minute, you know the science, you know what the impacts are going to be, you can see what the impacts are, so why is there this disconnect? And I'd say that the disconnect is there is because actually what we really like is a political movement. We lack that narrative to actually tell people the reality of what, not just what the planetary emergency is out there, but actually what the consequences are going to be, and already are. So, 
and I know some people say, well, uh, you're wrong. Surely on the budget, there's a longer, there's much, there's more time that, yeah, what about this? You can decarbonize in 2100 or decarbonize in 2050 or the IPCC reports. And if it's true, there are some models that say you can decarbonize in the, but they're all based on carbon neutrality. Yeah, that you put more carbon in the atmosphere and then you suck it back out. Yeah? And most of the technologies that are being proposed are, of course, unproven. The biggest one that is being produced, uh, proposed is, uh, is about carbon sequestration. It's about bioenergy. And just to give you a figure, the, the Tyndall Centre, again, estimates that you would need something like about 6 billion hectares of land to be able to sequester that amount of carbon to bring it back to one5 in relation, we spent, we use about 1.5 billion hectares for food production all around the world. That's the consequence. And again, we know reality, the reality like our policies around agrofuels, uh, biofuels that the European Union has, it has direct consequences on food production, on land, on land grabbing and displacement, and of course, therefore, on the movement of people around the world. Now, I'm saying all of that, sorry, and just to give you a bit of a background in terms of the context of you know, what we see. And as I said, look, the IPCC's assessment reports, you know, they all talk about, I mean, and it's not just now. If you read the first ever assessment report, it, it says large-scale global migration might represent the single greatest impact on world security. They said that, whatever, 20, 25, 20, my math's gone now, 1990, whatever. Uh, and Nicholas Stern, when he did his, you know, incredible review, he said that hundreds of millions, if not billions of people would move if we start to talk about a warming of the planet between three to four degrees. Right? Now, of course, you know, there is a lot of work being done. And you heard a little bit in terms about the Nansen Initiative, and now we've got the platform for disaster displacement. And, of course, these are all really, really positive first steps, really positive steps. But I would argue that they're actually band-aid for a gaping wound, right? That actually what's being proposed, right, which is all fine and well and great in terms of individual little initiatives, it's too little. It's simply too little. And the reason why it's too little is because there is no political will. So the three propo proposals that are put on the, on the table, right, uh, and social movements in the South discuss these and they say, well, look, we're told climate refugees or climate-induced migrants and displaced people, they don't have any protection. So they should have some protection under the Refugee Convention. Then people say, oh, no, 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 no. We can't open the Refugee Convention because the political will doesn't exist for us to include climate refugees in there and actually we might end up weakening the, the existing Refugee Convention. They say, okay, well, what about a new convention? Well, no, 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 a new convention. We just don't have the political will. There's no way that governments are going to agree because if they don't agree to take the action in terms of tackling climate change, why are they going to take this, uh, to, take this agree, uh, uh, agree to a new convention? Okay, so let's have non-binding protocols. Well, the problem with non-binding protocols, like all of these things, is that they're non-binding. And I'm sorry, but if you're standing in the global south, you don't have much faith in the global north on these particular issues. Because we only need to look at the reality of what's going on in Europe. We talk about, you know, a Syrian refugee and a migrant crisis. You know, and we open, and again, I'm sure you all know, yes, uh, about the famine, uh, about the drought that impacted in Syria and, had, and was one of the contributing factors. And of course, 
uh, food issues and, 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 and the tripling of food prices was one of the, one of the triggers of the Arab Spring across. And we can all, you know, th these are all things, they're all accepted and they're all fact. But what's interesting, of course, is how Europe has responded to that. And Europe has responded in a way which I find absolutely incredible. I find it incredible that actually we allow it to happen in this particular way. We allow a frame and a narrative, really, which is about the other. And it's about the other, which basically says, I'm not really that bothered. And, I, and it starts from a premise which actually says that the most important thing for the North is actually looking after its own citizens at the exclusion of everybody else. And that, I think, is the cornerstone of actually the majority of climate negotiations and climate discussions. It's not about trying to deal with a global problem. It's actually about protecting your own economic self-interest. So that's why when we had the floods here last year in, in the UK, you may remember the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail's headline was, never mind foreign aid, what about national aid? Okay. As, a, as a response to, to the flooding. And the Daily Telegraph who said, we should be actually spending all of our overseas development aid on UK flood defences. So for me, it's actually, this whole discussion is not about a technical policy discussion. It's actually about a political fight. It's about reframing something. Because unless you reframe this debate into one around about solidarity and justice, we're losing. We're losing because just a few weeks ago, in Austria, one in two people voted for a fascist president. One in two... A handful of votes made the difference in that election. And that's not nothing new. Because if you look in Switzerland, the Swiss People's Party, the far-right party there, got 30% of the vote, has won every referendum on migration, on immigrants, on, on, on excluding immigrants. In Italy, with the Northern League. In France, the Front National, 6.8 million votes in the last regional elections. And the reality is in the presidential election next year, they will be in the second round. It's, it will be a fight between the far right and the right, according to existing opinion polls. And in, in Finland, yeah, all these Scandinavian countries, you know, the last bastion of social democracy, where the party of the Finns, you know, the, the far right party, which was once, you know, had a cordon around it that nobody would talk to it, their leader is now the foreign minister of Finland. And of course, in Hungary, where the Jobbik, where the far right fascist party, is the second biggest party in Hungary. But the leader of Hungary, the Prime Minister Orban, you know, he is the one that sent the qu a questionnaire to every Hungarian citizen saying, we are facing a threat of ISIS and terrorism. Do you believe and do you agree we should be building fences all around Hungary? And of course, citizens said, yes, we should be building fences around Hungary. And... I heard mention of, of Australia, and of course, look at, look at Australia. Yeah. Australia, where you're pushing of, of, of migrants and refugees to where? To a concentration camp on Nauru. I, I call it that. I call it that. I call the fact that actually what we're seeing around the world, this narrative of building walls and building fences, is actually about the other. So when Donald Trump talks about building a wall between the United States and Mexico, we can laugh a little bit. Oh, isn't he a buffoon? And forget that actually that was the position of all the Republican candidates. And actually that the European Union is actually building the fences around Europe. 
That fortress Europe is getting higher and higher. The walls are getting higher and higher around it. And we see that. What's today's report this week? How many hundreds of people died in, a, in, in the latest uh, 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 drownings in the Mediterranean? Two and a half thousand people dead this year already. Three and a half thousand died last year. And just look at, okay, we might never know the names and the faces of these people, but look at where people are coming from. And then it's interesting, because where are people coming from? Where are they being displaced? They're coming from the Sahel, which is facing one of its longest droughts. They're, f they're coming from the Horn of Africa, where you're seeing climate impacts in terms of impacts on food and agriculture. And they're coming, of course, from Syria and other places, where conflict has been increasingly impacted by climate change. So my, my challenge, I think, I was asked to maybe say about obstacles and opportunities. Sorry, I don't know how long that's was. Five minutes. Okay, all right, I have a chance to go on. Um, so so I, I think in terms of the obstacles and opportunities, look, the reality is, you know, the reality is that the poorest countries in the world are faced with a challenge. Right? They can't adapt to climate change. They can't. They can't adapt and deal with the impacts that we're seeing in terms of even internal displacement. Because let's remember the majority of people who are being impacted by climate as they impacted by all other inequalities are displaced either internally or to neighbouring countries. They never make it to the shores of, of Europe or the US or anywhere else. But look at what's being put on the table. $100 billion by 2020. $100 billion. Now, UNEP itself says you need between four to $500 billion on adaptation alone. Some figures say you need actually up to about $3 trillion. Now, we think about those figures and go, oh, my God, they sound really huge until you think we spent between 11 and 13 trillion on bailing out the banks. So these figures are not actually that huge when we look at the consequences, not only in terms of human impact, but of course on, on the global economy, etc. And of course, many of the poorest countries face multiple challenges. They're facing challenges of not just of climate, but of economic inequalities, you know, which means that the United States, with what, 5% of the world's population, has a per capita income of $41,000, where India, with 18% of the world's population, has a per capita income of about $3,300. And the least developed countries, the poorest countries, they have a per capita income of over $1,000. Now, we live in a globalised world. The reality is we all see now the images of how the North in the South. So, of course, the desire not just about safety in these situations, but actually about the right to have a dignified life is a compelling argument. And that's where the global social movements put a challenge to the North. They say, don't talk about us as being about what can we do about these particular protocols, etc. What we want is a fundamental sea change in how you talk about us in the, in the global side. We don't want to be just talked about as being refugees and migrants. We actually want a movement and a, talk and, a, and, a, and a discussion that actually talks about the root causes, about the inequalities, that says actually to tackle climate change, not only do you need to tackle climate change, you need to tackle your unfair trade deals. You need to tackle your, the economic inequalities that drive. You need to tackle all of these issues. You need to tackle the fact that agricultural food system uh, or the role of your multinationals in our countries. Now, as academics, and I presume you're all in the, uh, the... Of course, the movements want more data. They want more information. 
So all the research that you do about, you know, climate impacts and relating to migration is really, really useful. And the, the, the movements working on this particular issue want that. But first and foremost, actually what they want people to do is say, we recognise that this is not a technical policy. And as a technical policy, we're never going to win. That the only way we're going to be able to win this is having a political, seeing it and framing it as a political struggle. And to see it and frame it as a political struggle, we have a moment. That moment is in 2018, when the IPCC will do a review of the 1.5 degree target. There is call now to make that 2018 the 1.5 moment, but to talk about it and say at that moment, we should be talking about two things. One, we should talk about, yes, rich developed countries need to do more, but actually we should also say, if you're not going to do more, then we do want a refugee convention. We want a climate refugee convention, not because we technically think it's realistic, but actually because we think politically it's important to have that conversation in the global north. So I'd like to hear maybe your thoughts on whether that is a, is a, a, is a challenge that we in the north can live up to. Thank you.